Your organization is alive. You're not a machine. You're a living system. I'm Paul Miller and welcome to The Nature of Work, where we explore the people, practices and organizations who are bringing a new story of work to life. This podcast is hosted by myself and Shimreet James and is based on the book Nature of Work, A New Story of Work for a Living Age, written by myself and Shimreet James and is produced by the Digital Workplace Group. For more information about the Nature of Work book, visit natureofwork.com. And if you'd like to bring this new story of work alive in your company, visit digitalworkplacegroup.com. I'll probably always need to remind myself to listen to my body better because I spent, you know, 25 years ignoring any sign of physical exhaustion that I possibly could until it reached a point where my body forced me to acknowledge it. And I think that's true for a lot of people who, um, because they're disabled, because of fat phobia, because of just chronic overwork, because of racism, um, all of these things have just been told that, that who they are and their humanity is, is not enough. Just tell us about our guest today, Shim. I'm really excited for this one, Paul. We have Dr. Devon Price joining us, who is a social psychologist, a writer, an activist, and also a professor at Loyola University of Chicago's School of Continuing and Professional Studies. And uh, they're also author of a book called Laziness Does Not Exist, which is uh, one of the, the primary reasons we invited them to join us today to, to be in conversation with us. Yeah, I mean, were you somebody who's ever said called lazy when you were growing up, Shim? I, yeah, I have never been called lazy. You've always. never, ever? <laughs> Not that I'm aware of. Well, my best friend will joke that I'm lazy because I nap a lot. Um, but I think... You know, one of the things that Devon shares is this idea of we have internalised this idea of of laziness being bad. And I think that is definitely something I feel quite deeply. How about you? God, it's terrible to admit I've never, ever been called lazy. (laughs) When I was young, people used to call me action man. Do you mean they used to get those little kind of figures uh, well, you probably didn't because it was it was when I was growing up, they were like a toy that boys liked and and they had lots of kind of like little weapons on them and little suits and clothes. And people used to say you're kind of like Action Man. I mean, what I liked about talking to Devon about this topic of laziness, it really sort of exposed the obsession with busyness and activity and productivity that I think has been embedded in our industrial age culture and and the ideas around sleep, rest. I I mean, one of the things that I do think about is that, again, if you look at nature, you don't see what we would call lazy animals or lazy parts of nature. I mean, nature has its cycle, but they, but the, it's not. It's, it would be ridiculous to call a tree lazy. It would, and I think one of the things that really struck me from the conversation, and and as I've been reading through their book as well, is is who is considered lazy, 
and who isn't considered lazy. And, you know, one of the things Devon talks about is the impact of things like fat phobia, ableism, racism, uh, I would add classism, and how often they're the people who get called lazy when they're anything but. Um, and the impact of that, that really, really struck with me as well. Yeah, I mean, and a lot of it comes back to to trust. I think once you trust people in, in work you and give people some level of autonomy in work, and this is one of the themes coming through, I think, different episodes of the podcast, is you, you in a way, we find our own water level and, and you don't experience something which we might label as laziness. It feels like it was come up a topic, a sort of subject, the devised, I don't know what the def, the it'd be interesting to find out maybe in the show notes what the definition or where the history of the term comes from. It's, it's uh, interesting. But the other thing it made me think about is that, you know, a book and this podcast called The Nature of Work. And I, and I would like to think maybe the actual nature of work is ch- is changing. And what we mean by work, which Devon talked about, is is changing. Yeah, absolutely. I loved what they said about trying the need to move away from a linear concept of what work is to something that's almost akin to a spiral, um, which is more about what brings us satisfaction, what mm. brings us purpose. Mm. And actually thinking about that rather than the hours that we put in. Yeah, so, Dr. Devon Price. Let's get to it. Devon, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, we're so excited to have you join us. Um, and just for our listeners, what we're going to be talking through today is really the story of, of looking and understanding rest and what that means to us and what that means in terms of exhaustion as well. Within nature, and we, we talk about this a lot in the book, is animals need and understand the importance of rest. They know it instinctively. Nature knows it instinctively. That's why we have the seasons we go through where nature is able to rest over winter and then regenerate into spring. And yet us as a human species have somehow learnt this idea that to rest is lazy. And that's embedded so deeply within society, within the way that we work. It's a very industrial way of approaching work as well. And so that's something that we're all trying to unlearn. As, and we all feel really deeply at the moment as well as rates of burnout skyrocket. And so I'm so delighted to have you with us, Devon, today. And Devon is the author uh, of a book called Laziness Does Not Exist. Um, so Devon, welcome. How? Uh, yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah. So how, how do you describe the work that you do that then led to you doing the book? Well, I guess in that context, um, I would never have written this book if I hadn't been an overworked adjunct professor at that time, teaching at three, sometimes four different schools, rushing all around Chicago from campus to campus, and teaching a lot of students who were just as exhausted as I was, who were working adults, who were dealing with all kinds of struggles and and traumas, and who were themselves constantly being told by some of their other professors, which I would kind of see around campus this play out, um, they were being told that they were lazy or that they weren't taking their education seriously. 
And so that experience made me very, very angry and very, very um, sad and outraged for the sake of my students, as well as for myself, really. Um, and that's when I started writing about this idea that the people that we call lazy um, and that we admonish for not committing themselves hard enough to some task, whether it's work or school or something else, are almost always the people facing the biggest barriers, overcoming the greatest challenges, and juggling the most responsibilities of all. I mean, one of the things that I put down thinking about the connection between your work as a social psychologist and, and professor um, and, and the book that Shimrit and I wrote, which has the proposition that all organizations are actually organisms, they're all alive, and that we should start thinking about the world of work as something that is a living system, more like a, uh, a forest than a factory. And I, I started thinking about the fact that in nature, because, I mean, the title of your book is so intriguing, Laziness Does Not Exist. I think we've all grown up, I certainly have, believing that laziness was, was a thing. But if you look at animals, they're not lazy. You don't see animals that are lazy. When they're tired, they rest. Um, I walk quite a lot in nature, and trees don't appear to be lazy. They, they, they have different cycles to think. And why, why do you think human beings have come up with this concept of laziness? Yeah, so... Um... I track some of this in my book, but there's a lot going on with it. Um, I think laziness has played a really valuable role um, as a tool of social control. Um, and we tend to see it emerge the more a society industrializes and becomes capitalistic and also relies on exploiting people's labor or forcing people to work in the case of enslavement. If you are forcing people to work and they don't see a clear-cut direct benefit for themselves as to why they should be working hard at something, um, then you need some kind of narrative to kind of justify to yourself why you are pushing them to work past their limits and also to kind of get them to be complicit uh, and sign off on their own exploitation. So this idea that certain people are just lazy and unmotivated and you can't trust people to work on their own and you, in fact, have to force them to work or you have to really push them to ignore their limits and feelings of exhaustion. That's one of the big kind of lubricating forces that keeps a lot of these machines running. Um, because if we were to just trust people to set their own limits, to listen to their bodies, to set priorities based on what's important to them, um, society and work and how we take care of each other would have to look really, really fundamentally differently. And we just wouldn't have that power to extract every waking minute of productive capacity out of someone that a lot of us, unfortunately, kind of labor under that setup. What I was going to say was, as you've been talking through that, well, I know you call it the laziness lie, Devin, as you've been talking through that, what comes to mind to me is I've read elsewhere this idea that within that system that we all work within and live within that belief system rest almost becomes a radical act it becomes an act of revolution um if you are one of those people who are dealing with those boundaries and with those difficulties of of feeling like you are having every ounce of your productivity extracted because that's where your value comes from and 
the question I have for you is what's lost? What are we losing from, from living that lie day to day? We lose so much, almost everything. We lose our ability to understand consent in any kind of healthy way. If it's considered more moral to say yes and to do something and to take a responsibility on, and it's kind of seen as morally suspect to say no, um, or that that saying no is something that you have to justify and earn, that completely warps our ability to actually consent to things. It's an almost innately coercive environment. It also detaches us from any sense of what our personal values are and our ability to live in alignment with those values. So I think we all know that experience of someone working for a company or working in a field that they do have ethical or moral qualms about and just all of the little cognitive dissonance breaking loops that we have to kind of jump through to say, well, I have to do this to pay the bills. I have to do this to take care of my family. There's nothing else I can do. Um, so I have to find some way to live with this industry that I'm working in um, and the elements of it that are really troubling to me. Um, the hatred of laziness means that we really look at people's bodies in a very suspect way. It's really closely linked to fat phobia. It's inextricably linked to ableism, the idea that certain people who can't work basically don't have societal value because we're defining people's humanity by how much productive capacity they have. It's a really dehumanizing um, idea. So really, the hatred of laziness is something that has eroded our relationship to humanity, I think, in a really fundamental way, because it blocks us from seeing all other people as worthy of life and compassion and comfort and joy, um, even if they can't work. So can I just ask, Devin, did, um, I mean, were you somebody who was very, I'll use the word kind of productive uh, or busy when you were kind of growing up? Or were you somebody who wasn't like that? I'm just trying to kind of get a sense of um, what you were like as a uh, as a person growing up in this, because I'm, th I'm trying to sort of think of myself. And um, so I'm just interested to to hear how you got into that oh yeah my whole life is a reduction to absurdity of this idea that your productivity determines your worth i was someone who um was always a little bit different from other kids i'm autistic so i and i didn't know that at the time um so i definitely invested a lot of attention in the things that i was good at which was academics and writing and speaking and like being an impressive, you know, teacher's pet kind of type. Um, and I thought that would be my salvation since I, especially at that time in my life, really struggled to connect to other people. So then I went, by the time I went to college, I knew I wanted to get a PhD and be a professor. I finished college early. I finished graduate school early. Um, I went immediately into a postdoctorate um, fellowship when I was 25 and I was checking off all of those little boxes that you're supposed to check off if you want to be a virtuous worker bee in our culture. And as soon as I started my postdoc, I was struck with this incredibly intense fever um, that I would get every single night for almost nine months. Um, 103 degree fever, chills, even in like 90 degree weather, just completely unable to do anything every evening. 
And my body was really breaking down from how hard I had been working and from how detached I was from my body and from humanity, really. I was just trying to live in my head and define myself by my productivity and what my brain could do for other people to like be impressive. And so after just a battery of medical tests, trying to figure out what was going on with me for months, eventually I just realized that I needed to rest and not push myself so hard. And that really forced me to rethink my entire value system and lifestyle and also how I thought about other people, because I don't think you move through the world punishing yourself that hard without also taking a pretty dismal view of other people. Um, so that had to really change pretty dramatically as well. There's something that really resonated with me there, which was the idea of almost rest being seen as weakness. And there was something I read earlier this week, which was we need to change this mindset of rest equals laziness to actually rest is almost a form of intelligence kind of emotional body intelligence of, of what your body needs and you know i i'll be honest i i suffered from burnout earlier this year as well dwg this organization were really supportive for me as i went through that um but one of the things that i've had to relearn is what rest actually is to me it was I thought I understood it as sleeping enough or just kind of not doing as doing as little as possible, basically. And I've had to relearn that actually there are different forms of rest. And I'd be really interested in hearing what does rest mean for you? What does your what is your studying and your learning taught you about what rest actually is and the role, what it does to us? Yeah. So I guess the first thing I would want to clarify is that I don't really think of my work as being about the importance of rest mm -hmm. per se. I think there's a lot of really great writing about, um, for example, you mentioned the idea that rest is resistance. And of course that comes from Trisha Hershey of the nap ministry. Yeah. who's done really incredible work about this. And that's really rooted in the idea of specifically black female liberation. Um, and the idea that the more exploited you are historically, the more radical it is for you to claim your time and rest. Um, so it's also for everyone. Um, but what I really, it also, I have noticed, and it sometimes troubles me how talk about rest and talk about self-care can sometimes be grabbed onto by our culture and by our economic system and exploited in the way where self-care just becomes another thing that you're supposed to put on your calendar and another thing that you need to check off your to-do list and a thing that you only do because it's going to restore your productive capacity. So I tend to think of my work as not just being about rest um, so much as throwing out our entire belief system regarding work making a person more valuable and um, challenging people to think about what do you really value in life, what's important to you, and what would your life look like if you could live in line with those values. And so um, a lot of times that will mean resting a lot more, right? That will mean saying no to um, guilt at the workplace that's kind of causing you to take on somebody else's job duties after they leave, right? That's that's a very common um, dynamic that plays out in a lot of organ organizations. Or um, saying no to expectations that your home needs to look a certain way, or that your body needs to look a certain way, or that your um, kids need to be constantly busy and overscheduled if you want them to have a good future, you know? Cutting back and resting and giving yourself more time is absolutely a really big part 
of what I kind of advocate for. But um, I think even more than that, it's about reorienting your life. So that may mean putting a lot more of the energy that you do have towards something creative or something that is fulfilling to you that is not going to advance your career, for example, um, or to something that just gives you pleasure. It's really about what you were just saying, Devin, about it's really about changing the belief system that we have, that has, we've internalized these ideas of self-worth being so tied up with productivity because that's what society has told us and what we have learned. And, you know, it's you mentioned how things like fat phobia and, and ableism the people that are harmed the most by these beliefs will often be marginalized people. And so is there a way of balancing, kind of unlearning, unlearning those things that society have told us that we are based on who we are and what they think about us? And I say us as a marginalized people, for example, or anyone, because it harms everyone to, to believe these things. But how do you unlearn those things while the system itself and the society in which we live in that does value capitalism, that does value overwork, potentially isn't changing. It's that balance between the work, doing the work ourselves and advocating for ourselves while also knowing that the wider system needs to change. Yeah, it's the thing that haunts me the most talking about this stuff because I don't think an individual on their own unless the system changes, is going to break free of all this, right? I think there are things we can do individually to rebel against it and to kind of lie, cheat, and steal as much free time uh, from the kind of clutches of the system as we can get. And I think we can't hold ourselves to a standard of perfection on this. Um, if you've been just basted in this belief system for decades since you were a child, you're going to always carry a little bit of that fingerprint and um, have a lot of first kind of knee-jerk reactions to things that you'll have to notice and recognize for what they are and kind of then put aside. So, for example, I'll probably always need to remind myself to listen to my body better because I spent, you know, 25 years ignoring any sign of physical exhaustion that I possibly could until it reached a point where my body forced me to acknowledge it. And I think that's true for a lot of people who, um, because they're disabled, because of fat phobia, because of just chronic overwork, because of racism, um, all of these things have just been told that, that who they are and their humanity is, is not enough. Um, so yeah, I think, I, I don't know what the answer is beyond that. You know, I have tools in the book for, here are some ways that you kind of can cut more responsibilities out of your day and streamline your life. And here are ways to get back in touch with your emotions and your bodily cues so that you recognize earlier on when you need to say no to something and let something go and walk away. But um, this is a massive centuries old thing. And so I think it's also important to kind of acknowledge that if it feels hopeless if you're, or if you're beating yourself up for having internalized this stuff, like, of course you would have. It's so impossible to, to escape. Mm. And, and do you think, do you feel that, that things have changed? I'll put down pre and post pandemic, um, whether we're in post pandemic or I'm not, it's, it's hard to tell the moment, but, but the, the, certainly the world of work pre 
pandemic and the world we're in now has the importance of this conversation about the awareness of how we are working and what's what's expected of ourselves of each other has are you seeing that change the pandemic has really been a clarifying moment i think for a lot of people i think first of all when you just have something as drastic and severe as an international mass death event happening that provokes a lot of people to pause and say what am i doing why have i been grinding away at these things and what actually matters to me so i think that can be kind of beautiful as much as it is as it as it is also incredibly haunting um and i do think we also have had just a really um just stark discrepancy between what a lot of our employers are asking of us and what our lived realities are during the pandemic so for example productivity went up during the pandemic people who were working from home in a variety of different industries were you know around 30 to 40% more productive in the past year than they were in years prior and this was despite the fact that a lot of managers and employers and large companies were really afraid that employees were quote unquote getting away with not working again during an international uh, mass death event uh and they invested in all kinds of um employee monitoring and surveillance software because they were so worried that they couldn't trust people to just work when they were at home and what we really found from the data is just that a lot of our sense of mistrust in people this idea that people are at their base level lazy yet again the pandemic really illustrates how untrue that is people worked really hard people made a lot of art people reached out to each other they organized lots of digital events people read a lot they took to the streets in activism here in the US um and people want to feel useful and they want to do something that matters so it's really sad now to watch as a lot of businesses are opening back up and returning to the office they're still acting like we didn't learn any lesson from the pandemic and behaving as though we need a 9 to 5 work day with a commute in an office with a manager breathing down your neck in order for people to do any work even though we know that isn't the case we've seen it it's interesting isn't it it's almost like faced with the facts that once you give people more autonomy more flexibility actually the what happens workwise improves act uh, and So it it does feel to me like something has shifted culturally through the pandemic but I don't think the world of work has yet absorbed the implications of it. Yeah, and I think you know what what you said Devon around people returning back to this idea of I I remember it deeply from from a previous job this idea of shirking from home um seeing that creep back in where the trust isn't there and I it's hard to know why that is I think similarly in to what you've been saying again Devon the idea ideas and beliefs around laziness are so deeply internalized that it's not going to take just 18 months to to uproot that and so when you're back in the office as a manager or as a leader and you have people still working from home it's all too easy to go back to that deeply embedded belief system um because i don't think we've had enough time really to it takes so long to change a value system i think it's also just really incentivized if you are a manager you almost have to believe that you're needed right 
Um, and so that, that means you have to think that you play some role in making sure that people are getting things done. And I think depending on the nature of the management position, this isn't true of all of them, some people need to be needed. So they need to believe that they can't trust their employees without them micromanaging. And so the truth is really impossible for them to take in if they were to live with their jobs, basically. Yeah. And there's, there's a really interesting shift and opportunity here for them as well, though, because one of the things we've seen spoken about time and again with our, our members and our clients is this emergence of the em- empathy and the empathetic manager and the empathetic colleague and leader who has been forced to listen to what their people really need and a hope that I see time and again that that empathy isn't just going to disappear overnight but it's here to stay because the power of the people that are in with the organ within the organization means that you need to maintain it and there's a real opportunity I think for managers to to take that shift to become more empathetic to reimagine their role not as someone who kind of in the industrialized model just needs to make sure everybody is delivering what they need to deliver but actually help them be the best person that they can be within work and also rounder of that as well to help them with learning and to help with their well-being and I know that one of the things you speak about in your book is the importance of boundless compassion and compassionate curiosity as some of the ways in which we can start to unlearn the the laziness lie and it'll be really interesting to hear more about what that means for you and if they if you're happy to share some ways that people can practice that as well yeah so the boundless compassion piece is really challenging people to behave as if all human life actually has value no matter how productive someone is or isn't and that really each person is doing their best and actually is quite competent at determining what matters to them and what they're going to put their very limited energy and resources towards. Um, so the some of the quickest and easiest ways to enact that in your everyday life that have the most potential are things like giving homeless people money and just trusting them to decide for themselves what they're going to do with that money. If they're asking, it's because they need it. They're a human who is under-resourced um, and their life has value and you can give them the dignity of letting them make a choice about what they're going to do with resources that, you know, in a fairer world, they would already have access to. Supporting policies that treat and look after human life in that way. So, you know, in a lot of countries, the US, the UK, lots of other places, over the past few years, we've had really strict slashes to things like disability benefits, or um, really intense scrutiny placed on people with disabilities to prove year after year after year that they really are disabled enough to deserve to make, you know, less than the poverty line um, every year in disability benefits. And that's a really grueling approach to human nature. And it has a real body count, unfortunately, and it just really um, erodes a lot of people's quality of life. So really pushing back against this idea that a lot of us have and that when you encounter it in other people that there's just lazy fakers who are trying to take advantage of the system. And instead just saying, okay, if someone needs that kind of support, this is part of what we have a society for. Society is supposed to take care of its members um, and not force them to prove that they're deserving of life. 
um, and that they've done everything in their power and suffered as much as possible uh, in the pursuit of staying alive. And then in the workplace, I think not policing your fellow workers and not, um, not letting any resentment kind of seep in if you see someone who's setting boundaries perhaps better than you are, not resenting them for having those boundaries or for leaving work on time. Um, that's a big conversation that's been kind of popping off on my um, social media in the last couple of days of people who stay late at work because nobody else has left yet. And this constant arms race of doing more and more and resenting anyone who just has normal, healthy boundaries and leaves at the time that you're supposed to leave. Um, so I think that's another way that we can really extend compassion to other people. Um, and that all of these things make life easier for ourselves at the same time. If we create a more relaxed, forgiving, compassionate world, we also reap the benefits mm. of that. Yeah, and, I mean, and there was certainly some examples I've seen just recently on the news over here of different organisations where they're they're allowing people who 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 are choosing to come back into the office to basically come whenever they want, leave whenever they want, and they were just talking about how. They're seeing the organisation change and new habits are happening. So, you know, if, if you want to go off at whatever time because you've got something that you want to do or you want to take a break in the middle of the day, the acceptability of that. And I, I, a lot of it seems to come down to trust. And this is something we've heard on different um, episodes of the podcast that, that we've kind of been through a period and was, I think, still somewhat in it but I hope coming out of it of where we've distrusted people and, 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 you know, the whole idea, as you said, Shim, of, of people slacking. I do think universal basic income, we've had a little bit of a pandemic experiment with the furlough scheme in a way, you know, we're, we're, we're just, there's just been a process of giving people money and it's, I think, been an effective way of, of dealing with things. I hope it's a, chance to do something more but one kind of curious thing i wonder about um is is sleeping at work um i've since i was in my 20s always liked when i can to have a little nap in the afternoon only for about 10 or 15 minutes and i found it just kind of it was a real kind of perk up for the rest of the day um and i know some companies not very many are creating pods where people can sleep. But it strikes me that if you're expecting people to come somewhere, having somewhere where they can sleep feels like a good idea. But it's so kind of counter to to what we think of as, as work. Is is that possible? Is it something we should aspire to? Well, I mean, what are your thoughts around that on Devin? Oh, yeah. My thoughts on that one are kind of ambivalent or kind of... Um complex because on the one hand, we do have such a really toxic norm in most workplaces of looking busy all the time, even though that's not how any human being works. People can only focus for a couple of hours uh, per day and, and then you're going to need time to daydream and chat at the water cooler and you know online shop and nap, right? So um, the idea that we could change the social norms so that it's normalized to take care of yourself in that way, that's a really beautiful thing. Um, and that could really change um, dynamics a lot and make us just kind of less likely to surveil ourselves and others in this really kind of controlling, uh, you know, need to be productive 24 seven kind of mindset. 
But at the same time, it also makes me think of places like the Google campus and a lot of tech companies that they present themselves as giving all of these wonderful benefits that care for their employees holistically. So there's a laundromat, there's a yoga studio, there are uh, places to nap, um, there are um, all kinds of different resources available, free food, um, but they do that in the service of keeping people there longer and making it your home away from home. And of course, Amazon is looking at basically creating a company towns. So your, your home at work even potentially. So I think it's both, it's tricky. It's, it's both a wonderful thing as an organizational culture to normalize resting and taking care of your body and not looking askance at someone for doing that. And at the same time, I'm always wary of how is a company going to weaponize this and use it to keep people there longer um, and you sometimes see that with the language of like, we're a family here too, that uh, that's not necessarily the best way to ensure boundaries and a healthy relationship to work, even though it can also feel really good. It can also be kind of seductive in a damaging way. So it's, it's tricky for sure. Yeah, I, as, as you were speaking, it reminded me of uh, the little pods that we heard were popping up in some of the Amazon warehouses, which were in theory presented as somewhere where you could have a lovely little nap, but actually was part of this wider toxic culture, um, which was all around productivity and the number of hours and minutes that you're spending. And I think it's, it's it comes back to this idea of are you just doing it? Why are you doing it? It's the motivation of the organization almost, as you said, for, for some of those big tech companies, it was to keep people on site. They weren't fully integrated with their local communities. They weren't thinking about the impact of what they were doing on the local community. If you're trying to provide all of these things on campus, that sucks away business as well from, from the local economy. Um, and at the same time, a lot of them have really harmful practices for their minorities. There was the example of Google recently of um, how they treated their ethical AI team and how they suppressed some of the, the learnings that was coming out there. Um, and so uh, I, I, changing the topic slightly, what's the question I have for you is we've been talking a lot about the laziness slide, the, the belief systems that we've internalized, some of the ways that we can start to unlearn them. And one of the things you said earlier was it's going to take the whole system to change, which can be a scary thing to think about and you can feel a bit hopeless for it, but it, it takes steps of us all acting and changing our behaviours to get there. And one of the things we talk about is this idea of a more beautiful world of work. Um, and I'd be curious to hear how does that feel, what would that feel like for you, for us to have a, a more beautiful, mindful world of work that where that laziness lie has disappeared and is history yeah i don't know if it would be a world of work at <laughs> all right um, yeah. i think it would be more of a world of um community support and autonomy and a and i think people would do a lot of the things that we now categorize as work right um i think going back to some some things we were talking about before people want to be creative they want to collaborate with others. They want to feel like they've left a meaningful mark on the world in some way. Um, so I think, I don't know, I think um, a world that was free from the laziness lie and that approached these things really differently, it wouldn't have this very like linear 
prepackaged relationship to time that we currently have where, you know, you need to have eight hours of sleep every day and then eight hours of work and, you know, everything is parceled out and consistent. We would have more of these periods of dormancy, um, just like nature, as you were talking about before, periods where we were mostly just focusing on our families or on recovering from something um, or just reading and learning more. And then we would also have periods in our lives where we were creating a lot of things um, that really reflected what we were passionate about. Um, it's so dramatically different that it's hard to even really imagine, um, even for me, um, because we've just always had it drilled into us that you need these structures to kind of corral people and parcel out their time and control it. Um, and I think the alternatives are just as numerous as, you know, there are human imaginations. Yeah, I think, I mean, in a way, the, the, the title of our book, Nat The Nature of Work, is really also posing the question, what is the nature of work? Because work, um, we sort of think we understand what work is, but actually work could be seen as, uh, in Sanskrit, the Indian word, um, uh, is, it just translates as action, really. Um, and, and we're so used to associating it with a certain type of activity, a paid uh, activity generally, but um, or, or voluntary work, um, but there's so much that happens that it is in that category. So I think the nature of work changing. One of the kind of amusing um, stories my partner and I sometimes say to each other is that, that we, I remember seeing a film with Keats about uh, John Keats, the poet, and in the film, he and his uh, another poet. It's sort of middle of the afternoon. And their, their their agent comes in and they're both lying on sort of very ornate chaise longs in this beautiful house, sort of smoking kind of pipes and and, and, and relaxing. And the, the agent sort of looks at them both and Keats just says, it may look like we're doing nothing, but actually we're working. And um, I, I kind of thought it was a, a you know really good example of this kind of work comes in lots of different forms. Yeah, yeah, especially if you're doing something that's creative or just involves building up relationships with other people. It's not about the productivity, the product that you're just visibly churning out. Um, and also, even when it is something that's creative, so much of, we all have abandoned projects, so much of our, our labor doesn't necessarily pay off, you know, think in a concrete, direct, linear way, but we always learn lessons and get ideas and develop skills that will come back and be useful later. And so the more we kind of move away from a linear, complete this project kind of sense of how life is supposed to work and more towards kind of a cycle or a spiral, I think, um, the more we can kind of be comfortable with that. The Nature Work podcast is produced by the Digital Workplace Group, a strategic partner and boutique consultancy supporting more than 100 leading companies and public institutions to advance their digital workplaces. For more information, visit digitalworkplacegroup.com. This is Paul Miller wishing you well until next time.